Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode we're looking at a relatively new game book, The Valley of Bones, the first book in the Legendary Kingdoms series by Oliver Holm, with illustrations by Robin Smith and cover art by Claudio Pilia. It was released in 2019 by Spidermind Games, making it one of the most current things we've ever included on this podcast. This book was suggested by Al Greer, and I'm very grateful to have been pointed towards it. This bonus episode, like all bonus episodes, is made possible by my supporters over on patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. Their largesse means more content for everyone, and all supporters also receive a bevy of gaming material. I'm also currently grinding my way through a new game book, which is about a third done as I start this recording. I'm hoping it will be out for Christmas, but there's been some life stuff that's got in the way recently. With luck, I've got a clear run at it for the rest of the year, though, so fingers crossed. The book that Valley of Bones feels closest to on a cursory inspection is Legion of Shadow, the Destiny Quest book we covered a while back. Like Legion of Shadow, Valley of Bones is a big piece of work, running to 903 paragraphs. I've deliberately given myself plenty of time to really grapple with this mammoth tome, but it does mean that there's going to be more of a gap between recording my playthrough and recording my closing remarks, so it's possible I may repeat myself even more than usual. Still, let's start by taking a look at the rules. The rules are more complex than the average gamebook, but still fairly simple. Characters are described by five skills. Fighting and stealth are exactly what you think they are. Lore represents your knowledge. Survival helps you to survive in the wilderness, and Charisma is Charisma. You check your skills by rolling a number of d6s equal to the stat being checked, and seeing how many dice beat the difficulty number specified in the text. You also have a number of successes you need to succeed. So you might need four dice to come up with a score of three or more to succeed in a check. In a fight, you roll your fighting, and every dice that beats the monster's defence number reduces their health by one. So, if you have a fighting of five, and three dice roll higher than the monster's defence, then you deal three points of damage. Monsters attack in the same way. If you're wearing armour, you get to roll dice to try and reduce the damage with each dice that succeeds, reducing the damage by one. Now, a big change from most gamebooks is that you run a party rather than a single character. There's a choice of six, and you select four. This is a bold direction, since multiple characters will create something of a distancing effect and potentially make the story feel less immersive. But it's also something that reflects a classic role-playing trope, so I'll be fascinated to see how it actually works in play. The characters all have a little biographic sketch, which tells you their motivations and a bit about their backstory, along with a nice simple bit of line art that gives you a, an idea of what these people look like. They are all very neatly written, short and to the point, but giving a decent sense of what the character is about. There's three boys and three girls, which is also great, 
and one of the characters is explicitly coded as queer, which makes me extremely happy. They've got a nice range of different skills as well, so there's plenty to think about when you're putting your party together. They can even romance one another, which is a definite first for a gamebook, but something I look forward to seeing in play. Two of the characters can use spells, and there's a nice tight list of seven starting spells, of which any starting wizard can choose three. There's four combat spells and three utility spells. I won't do the full list, but there's a nice mix. One interesting wrinkle is that once spells are used up, it costs you silver, the gamebook's currency, to refresh them. It's a cool idea. It makes money into more of an abstract symbol of your resources and gives the gamebook a unique feel. Although it does suggest that in this setting, Elon Musk might just be the mightiest wizard of them all, and I'm really not sure how I feel about that. I'll deal with the other rules as and when they occur in the text. Let's take a look at the party I have selected. My group is Sar Jessica Dane, a powerful knight with great fighting and charisma stats, who is motivated by ambition. Her half-sister Amelia Pass Dane is also coming along. She's an outsider who grew up in the wilds and learned a bunch of druid magic and she'll be my spellcaster. I'm also taking the final female character, Tasha, on the basis that she's good at stealth, queer, and a pirate, and I do love a pirate. The final character will be the charismatic but morally flexible Brash who lives on his wits. I always enjoy playing rogue characters, so this seems like a natural fit for me. For Amelia's spells, I've chosen Unfailing Strike, which does automatic damage in combat, Armour of Heaven, which makes one party member harder to hurt for the duration of one combat, and Animal Speech, which lets her talk to animals purely because it seems on-brand for a druid. They all cost 50 silver to recharge. Before we begin, it's worth noting that the rules section is really well written. Everything is concise and clearly worded, with examples where they would be useful. There's a real art to rules text, but sadly, you only tend to notice it when it's done badly, so I wanted to be sure to call it out here. I always find that a clearly laid out set of rules gives me confidence in the book before I've even begun, because it suggests that the author is minding their work. And we have seen, over the years, some truly atrocious bits of rules writing, so uh, always worth calling out when it's been done right. With all that out of the way, let's dive into the Valley of Bones. Should note that I am playing on a PDF copy, which has full links so that you just press on the section you want to turn to and it automatically takes you there. This is good. Links in PDFs of gamebooks are a good plan. I should also say that there is no background section other than the character bios that we got at the start. Uh, so we are actually jumping in very much into the thick of things. 1. You stir into consciousness. Heat and blazing sunlight. The slow rumble of a wagon. Heavy chains upon your limbs. You groan. Your mouth dry, your stomach empty. As your eyes focus, you can see your companions, fellow survivors of the brutal pirate attack, crushed together with you in the floor of a rolling wagon. You remember little 
since then, except vowing to your newfound friends that you would stick together come what may. You are relieved to see they are still alive, but where are you? Gazing through the bars of the wagon, your eyes focus on a blazing yellow-grey desert. To your left, filling the sky, are the stone walls, massive and impenetrable mountain ranges that divide the barbarian kingdoms of the south from the antique and mysterious lands of the Drake Hollow. But which side of the range are you on? The answer becomes immediately apparent as you look beyond the smelly dragon yaks which are ponderously hauling your cage. A vast, crumbling city of minarets and run-down adobe buildings fills your view. The sting in the air and on your lips tell you all you need to know. This is Saltdad, cruel throne of the tyrant Iron King, one of half a dozen tin-pot dictators in the barbaric Valley of Bones. You are far from civilised lands here. Thin-faced slavers with spears rattle the sides of your cage, barking at you to get down. You slump on your hindquarters. For the moment there is nothing you can do with you and your companions in chains. You swear you will regain your freedom and start your lives anew. But first you must survive the horrors of slavery. So, that is the introduction. Excellent. Really tight, focused writing. Hopefully this augurs for what we're going to be enjoying for the rest of the playthrough. The slavers have sold you to the dreaded Saltdad Arena, a grim place where the poor and criminal alike fight to the death for the savage entertainment of the crowd. So we've got some options. So it asks us whether we've got a couple of codes. Uh, there's a code word system, although they're not particularly exciting codes, being just a letter and a number. And we don't have any codes because we've only just started. And we haven't fought in the arena before, so the only option we can take is the one that says, if this is the first time you've been sold to the Salt Dad Arena. So uh, in this adventure, you could be sold into slavery multiple times, which is quite interesting. The Salt Dad Arena is the second largest complex in the city, with only the ancient palace looming larger. Its dungeons go deep into the earth where prisoners, slaves and monstrous animals are kept in large vaults, with only the feeblest light pouring through the barred arches set high in the ceilings. Your quarters are a large and ancient hall whose walls bear the sigils and faded murals of a more civilised age. Within this chamber are crammed nearly a hundred hungry captives, sleeping rough upon the gravel floor and relieving themselves in stinking buckets stacked in a far corner. You ask about feeding arrangements from one of your fellow prisoners, who gives you hollow looks. You'll know when it happens, he warns. Suddenly, a hatch at the top of the hall is swung open, and the barely cooked carcass of a mountain goat is dropped carelessly into the middle of the hall. There is a great crush as the prisoner surges one to tear off strips of flesh from the animal. A group of strong men from Larsbreath, slaves like you, batter the crowd away with threats, claiming first rights over the animal. You are starving. So we've got a choice. We can challenge the men to first rights over the meat. We can attempt to side with the men, 
we can wait our turn to get something to eat. Well, I do dislike a bully, so I'm going to challenge the men to first rights over the meat. Admittedly, that will just make me the biggest bully in the room, but hey. Puffing yourself up, you and your companions put on a brave show before the slaves, shoving them hard and roaring bold threats. This will require a good deal of bravery and force. So we've got to threaten the greedy slaves and it is a fighting check. So it's a team check. So our entire group gets to have a crack at it. Sar Jessica has a fighting of five. Amelia has a fighting of three. So does Tasha. And Brash has a fighting of two which gives me a total of 15 dice and I'm looking for four results of four or more. So great big handful of dice. Okay, I have successfully passed the threatening greedy slaves check. Pretty straightforward opener. Very nice to see. Show you how the system works in practice. So. Your physical strength and martial technique intimidate the slaves who grumble and back down, allowing you to rip the choice and best-cooked flesh off the goat first. One of the slaves, a fellow called Tommel, mutters dark warnings about revenge. Snarling at him, you retreat to a corner to finish your food. And we gain the code A2. So there we go, we've successfully got some lunch. Always an important part of any adventure for me, the uh, eating of food. You are almost relieved when the cruel overseers of the arena call you out of the filthy living hall for your first battle. You are fed water by children wearing neck chains in narrow, dusty chambers who present it to you in a deep bowl from which you are expected to slurp. One of the children, a pretty blonde girl called Milagros, quietly advises you to keep to the edge of the arena and not to engage in the central melee. Don't use magic, she hisses. They'll take your tongue. Guards push you on before you can question her further. You are unchained and shoved into one of the gate rooms. Through the heavy portcullis you can hear the crowd muttering in anticipation. You can see a number of crude weapons laid out for selection. Any party member may take a single crude blade, which adds naught to our fighting score. In addition, there is a single shield, which has an armour of plus two, and a maul, which uh, has a fighting of plus one, but takes two hands to wield. I will give the crude maul to Sar Jessica, because she's my fighting expert, and I quite like the idea of her beating people to death with what is fundamentally a big stick and the shield will go to Amelia on the grounds that she has the lowest health. She's only got six health, everyone else has got eight. All too soon the portcullis opens to a roar from the crowd. Blinking in the glare of the sun you emerge into the deadly arena. And there is a little picture of the young lass Milagros handing you the bowl in a dank underground chamber where some very sorry looking slaves are sat. The style I would say is kind of um, comic book art style 
Uh, it's very good. Very good. I don't think it's the sort of art that's going to stick in the memory by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, yeah, it's very nicely drawn and um, adds to the text in the way that good game book art always should. There is almost a full crowd in the huge arena with rich and poor alike rubbing shoulders on long wooden benches. On the sandy and blood-stained floor of the arena are a number of bones and skulls artfully left to bleach in the sun. You can see that all ten gatehouses have opened, disgorging teams of poorly armed slaves. Some are fearless men and women from Chalice, who do not so much as flinch as the crowd roars for their blood. Bold barbarians of Lars Breath hold their arms and weapons high as they seek endorsement from the bloody-minded crowd. Most of the warriors, however, look more like frightened peasants, mere fodder for the skilled warriors of the arena. Sitting high above the arena upon a throne-like seat is the Iron King himself, a black-bearded middle-aged man, his jagged iron crown sitting proudly on his skull. Next to him stands his bodyguard, the fearsome Malranach, the Death Engine. Now that is a good nickname. I feel as though if you've been nicknamed Death Engine, you are doing well in your chosen field of mayhem and slaughter. The solid metal golem was cast in the Elder Age of Sorcery and has turned aside the blades of a dozen assassins. Okay, it's slightly less impressive being nicknamed the death engine if you are actually an engine built for death i withdraw my previous remark at a cold and distant motion from the king the battle begins one team of excitable youths from the gate adjacent to you makes a sudden rush hoping to catch you off guard the crowd roar in joy the bloodshed is about to begin you must fight so we have some slaves and a leader we fight them at the same time the slaves have an attack of four and they need fives to score a wound they have a defense of three so i need to roll threes to wound them and a health of 15 and the leader has an attack of three needing fives to hit defense of four and five health so um, I think there's going to be a little bit of strategy here. Uh, taking out the leader first will reduce the amount of attacks I receive from 7 to 4. So that's what I'm going to try and do. But I'm going to do it off mic because it's that time again. It's time to roll some dice. I have defeated the slaves and their leader. Uh, Brash took one point of health damage, reducing his health from eight to seven. And Tasha took three points of damage, reducing her health from eight to five. I feel as though, actually, the sensible person to put the shield on is someone with high health, paradoxically, so that you can have them try and tank the damage so i'm actually going to move my shield from amelia to jessica not jessica no jessica i want to protect from damage at all costs because she's the best at fighting so 
Uh, I guess Tasha can have the shield. So, uh, having defeated the slaves, we are asked if Sarge Jessica Dane is in the party, and indeed she is. The fighting is chaotic, and more slaves come to join the battle as the fight rages on. Sar Jessica is separated during the scrum. After slaying an opponent, she is suddenly bull-rushed to the ground by an enormous Lars Breath barbarian, her weapons scattering from her grasp. The barbarian hefts his axe high above the helpless knight. You must rescue her. Choose another party member to come to her rescue. So, um, for the sake of pure role-playing, I'm going to say that her half-sister, Amelia, is the one who dashes to her rescue. It now asks us if we chose Tasha or Akihiro. Uh, we didn't choose Tasha. I thought about it, but I didn't. And we don't have Akihiro with us, so we must just read on. You dash to Jessica's defence, but alas, you are too far out of position. The axe lands with a sickening thud. Remove three health from Sar Jessica. Her health now down to five from eight. You manage to impale the barbarian from behind, kicking his dying body away from the night. If Sar Jessica is still alive, you haul her to her feet and spin around to face the rest of your opponents. So, already going really well. Classic HJD adventure. Nothing but the very best decision making for my listeners. The arena is a swirl of swords and axe blades, the crowd jeering as blood is spilt and bodies fall. In the centre, the greatest fighters have gathered into a spectacular melee, while on the outskirts, the cowardly and the injured seek momentary respite. Do you want to leap into the central battle fearlessly, or hang back until the fight comes to you? Well, I would describe my party as both cowardly and injured at this stage, so let's hang back and hope for the best. There is no point in provoking anything. You would rather deal with wounded and exhausted opponents than arena champions. You cast your eyes warily across the exterior of the battle. Uh, do you have the code A3? We do not. An arrow thudding into the ground near you, launched from one of the arena guards, spurs you back into the action. Clearly, you must fight or be executed. Hurriedly, you engage with the dregs of the fight to keep busy. So, we've got another opponent, which is the Salt Dad Slaves, who have an attack of six, needing fives to hit, and a defense of three, but a whopping health of twenty. So... For the second time this adventure, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Salt Dad slaves, and miraculously, between their terrible rolling and my brilliant armour, that shield really paying for itself, uh, they did no damage to me. So, yes, a glorious victory on the sands of the arena. I do love a story about gladiatorial games for some reason. Don't know why, probably because I'm a wrestling fan. With a final flourish, you slay your last opponent. Although there are other living slaves in the arena, the battle suddenly stops as the Iron King stands. In a thickly accented voice, which I will be almost certainly representing as Welsh, the King declares you champions of the arena. The crowd go wild cheering you heartily as you catch your breath from the intense battle. Any hopes you had that being made champion would grant you freedom 
are soon quashed. Instead, you are disarmed and led back into the dungeons to nurse your wounds. We must cross off all equipment. Did any party members use spells while in the arena? If so, they are taken away by the guards to a small room where their tongues are cut out and then sealed with branding irons. So, uh, yeah, good job I heeded that particular advice. Uh, each magic-using character would lose three health and would not be able to cast spells until they can find a way to regrow their tongues. What an awesome thing fantasy gaming is. Who'd have thought that uh, finding a way to regrow your tongue could be a... Uh, entertaining fantasy quest but uh yeah marvelous stuff that is such a strange sentence to read out loud as arena champions your quarters are improved a little you now have your own cell to sleep in half the size of an in-room with a dirty straw mattress in addition you are given some basic training from an experienced gladiator called che long who claims to be a sword saint from the nearby city of chalice the meals are slightly better too, with Milagros, the slave girl, serving you rice and cooked meat, as well as your water ration. All your party members can restore four health points. My party restored to the starting values of eight, six, eight, and eight. Between training bouts, you have many talks with Che Long, who is damning of the Iron King's rulership of Saltdad. I care not for who hears it. The man is a tyrant, he exhorts. Life is hard in the valley, but wanton cruelty such as his is uncalled for. It sticks in my throat that I had to fight for his pleasure. I had heard that all kings of the valley are petty tyrants, you say between mouthfuls of water. It was not always so, mutters Chelong. In times past we were ruled by a noble queen, the immortal Everchild, who cared more for her people than for her comfort. After the destruction left by the demon lord Abraxas, all that was left was ruins, and without her leadership the people of the valley became little better than barbarians. Only Chalice was a glimmer of civilization left. After a hard day of training, you make your way back to your cell, you have another bout in the arena tomorrow and you will need all your strength. Do you have the code A2? I surely do. During your evening meal, one of your characters has wandered off. Choose which character and turn to the next section. So who's wandered off? I feel like Tasha is the most likely to wander off. Yeah, I'll have Tasha wander off. You turn a corner and see Tommel, one of the thugs you bullied in the dungeon on your very first day. He is accompanied by another muscular man armed with a club. I told you I'll get even with you, scum, he snarls, advancing menacingly towards you. Do you want to run for it? Try and talk him down or raise your fists? I think we will run for it. I think uh, a two-on-one fisticuff fight is um, unlikely to be successful, so we'll, we'll take a powder. Discretion is the better part of valour. You attempt to bolt. Tommel is diving to make a grab for you. You must use the stealth ability of the character you have chosen. So, it's two successes and the difficulty is four. So, Tasha has a stealth of five. That was a good pick. So, just need to get two rolls of four or more. 
Note that's zero rolls of four or more. You are grabbed and pulled to the floor. Tommel and his brutish friend beat you with clubs until the shouts of the guards chase them away. Tasha loses three health. Definitely getting a little bit cocky on this adventure. And uh, that's put me right in my place. If you are still alive, you nurse your wounds grudgingly, muttering words of revenge under your breath. The sound of drums and the crowd's roar echoes in your ears as you are once again lined up in the gatehouse in preparation for your latest bout. So the usual maul, shield and crude blades are available. So give maul to Sar Jessica and the shield can go to Brash. Everyone else gets a crude blade. You step out into the broiling heat, the sun scorching the sands under your bare feet. You are the first competitors into the arena and receive a roaring cheer from the crowd as you appear. High above you, the Iron King gazes down impassively. Malranak, the Death Engine, standing unflinchingly by his side. There's a picture of the king who looks, yeah, average barbarian king, and a picture of... Malranak the Death Engine, who looks like a Warhammer 40k space marine, basically. Pretty intimidating. You look across the heat-swept arena as the far gate is opened. You cannot help but swallow as a pair of shaggy-haired desert lions come snarling out of the gate. Their manes are stained red with the blood of other victims, and they roar at you with filthy yellow teeth. You must fight for your lives. And again, we're reminded that you cannot use spells in this fight under threats of mutilation. So, the first lion has an attack of four, and it needs fours. The second lion has an attack of three, and it needs fours. They've both got a defense of four, and the first lion has nine, and the second lion has ten health. Meaning that, once again, I think it's a question of taking down the one with the lower health first because that will most quickly reduce the amount of damage we are receiving. So, once again, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the lions in the course of the battle. Brash took three points of damage, though his shield did sterling service in protecting him from several more bits of uh, incoming claw and tooth. So quite a high combat book so far, but we have had the opportunity to make quite a few decisions along the way, so I'm not complaining too much. The cheers from the crowd resound across the arena as the final lion falls dead. You cannot help but stifle a tear at the death of the noble beasts, cruelly plucked from the wild to fight for the entertainment of the savage crowd. Feeling more bestial than even a lion, you are taken from the arena and disarmed, eager for another bowl of water to slake your aching thirst. You come upon a sight of even greater cruelty. Poor Milagros is being shouted at and struck by an angry guard, enraged at receiving a splash of soup across his armour. The poor girl is on the ground in his shadow, nursing a bruise on her cheek as the guard pulls out his whip to punish her further. Do you want to dash to her defence or keep well out of it? 
I will dash to her defence once again. Don't care for bullies. You rush the guard, pulling him to the ground and kicking his whip away. Alas, more guards are never far away, and soon the room is filled with sweating, swearing soldiers who restrain and beat you as the other slaves look on. Each character must lose two health points. If this would take any character below one health, they stay on one health. The guards will not beat you to death this time. So predictable, but I don't regret it. Though I may come to regret it the next time I have to fight in the arena. You bend to help the injured Milagros who tells you not to worry. Though I've had much worse, but you are gracious to help, she says, wincing as she smiles. Perhaps you would walk me to the kitchens. I fear my hands tremble too much to carry the soup. Assisting Milagros, you follow her down the poorly lit tunnel towards the kitchen. You are brave warriors, and you have kind hearts, she says. It is not right that you should suffer and stultify here. There is a plan to abruptly shorten our sentence. If you would be free, follow me. Milagros makes a sudden turn down a narrow tunnel that plunges into darkness. You want to follow her? I do indeed. I'm desperate to get out of this arena. You make your way down the pitch-black tunnel, relying on touching the damp walls to guide you. You emerge into a small cell, through which light streams weakly from a tiny arch high in the wall. In the cell you can see Che Long, your trainer, and several other gladiator slaves. Welcome, my students, bows Che Long. He indicates Milagros. You come in good company, I see. I believe we can trust these warriors, announces Milagros. Tell them the plan, Che Long. Do they know what they are letting themselves in for? What they fight for? We are all slaves here, you assure them. We fight for our freedom. That and so much more, says Che Long, smiling. This is no mere slave girl. Standing before you is the reincarnation of the Everchild, the Queen of the Valley, the Supreme Sorceress herself. You look down at the dirty blonde waif. She speaks well, but could she really be a queen? The Everchild is a figure of legend, a story told to squires and children. Milagros sees the doubt in your eyes and places a finger in her soup bowl. She withdraws it and paints the walls with the thick soup, drawing strange symbols and wards, which begin to pulse and move as if under their own power. To your astonishment, she has drawn a spell upon the walls filled with arcane power. If you have any spellcasters in your team, they can learn the following spell. Soothing touch, which can be cast at any time. Uh, your hands glow with divine energy. Choose one of your party members. They may restore five points of health. Uh, and it recharges at a cost of 50 gold. 50 silver, I should say. With a wave of her hands, Milagros bathes your bodies in healing energies. You may restore the health scores of all your characters to full. If any of your characters have lost limbs, tongues or other organs, they are restored. Quite like the idea that you might regrow your appendix if you'd uh, had appendicitis as a child. In addition, any diseases or curses you are affected by are also removed. There can be no doubt. This young slave girl if not the Everchild, is certainly a sorceress of great power. 
We can now ask her about how she came to be enslaved, or we can ask her about the escape plan. Um, let's ask her how she came to be enslaved. I'm very nosy. I am not yet at my full potency, admits the other child, running her hand through her filthy locks. In my eagerness to see the Iron King dethroned, I sided with a certain group of revolutionaries. Sadly, we were ambushed by the king's men, and there was no opportunity for me to use my magic to turn the tide of the battle. I opted to keep my identity secret until a more appropriate juncture. But are you indeed the ever child reborn, as the legends say? You insist. I believe so, she nods. I was born to common folk, yet my mind is filled with memories, manners and skills from a past life. Even if I am not, I am determined to replace the Iron King's tyranny with even-handed justice. I am willing to take on the mantle of the Everchild, so why not take her name as well? Why do you not escape using your magic? you ask. It is not yet mighty enough for me to effect an escape on my own, she explains. Beside a queen needs followers, and mine are imprisoned here. We will leave together, or not at all. A noble sentiment, you admit, but how exactly do you plan to escape? It irritates me that the solution to a bad king is always a good monarch and not dispensing with the entire institution. But, uh, you know, I guess you've got to stick with the forms and tropes of fantasy literature. But there's plenty of fantasy literature which does interrogate the ideas that maybe there's nothing inevitable about an inherited monarchy, and indeed even in medieval history, other options are available. Chelong steps forward, giving his seat to the Everchild. The arena is ancient, and was once much bigger. There are vaults and tunnels that lead deep into the earth. We have, in secret, excavated one such tunnel. We cannot be sure that it leads to the surface, but we are willing to chance it. Why have you not gone already? You ask. We have no weapons, and there are creatures down there in the dark, mutters Chelong. We were driven back in our last venture. It is too dangerous to proceed unarmed. Unfortunately, the guards keep the weapons very well secured. They are not keen on allowing slave gladiators unfettered access to arms. How can we help? you ask. We need to get the weapons out of the gatehouse and into our hands, says Chelong. To do that, we will need strength and a good distraction. So, we've got a choice. We can volunteer to get the weapons, we can back out of the risky escape plan, or we can tell the guards the Everchild's plans. I love that the option's are there. I'm never going to really take it because I'm too much in favour of classic gaming tropes. I'm always going to take the side that leads me to the most exciting adventure. But I like that the option to be a absolute backstabbing, treacherous figure is there. Um, it allows you the chance to uh, roleplay as Michael Gove, if nothing else. So um, we'll volunteer to get the weapons because... Uh, we crave action. In order to get the weapons, you will need to split up your party. 
choose up to three members to perform a distraction and two party members to steal the weapons. You must have at least one party member performing each mission. Okay, well, we will split it right down the middle. So, Saar, Jessica and Brash will team up and Amelia and Tasha will team up. That gets me some fighting and some stealth in both groups, which I think could be could be pretty useful. Although one group is vastly more charismatic than the other. Sar Jessica and Brash should be able to talk their way out of problems. Emilia and Tasha, they're going to struggle. I'm really enjoying how the party has been implemented into the gamebook thus far. It does feel a little bit weird being addressed in the second person. Maybe there's an argument for saying that this might have been a gamebook that would have benefited from being written in the third person. I don't often say that. But yeah, the party stuff is proving to be tremendous fun. Your distraction team must divert the guards' attention from their posts at the gatehouse. What tactics do you think is best? So, uh, we can start a fight amongst ourselves, we can attempt to seduce the guards, or pretend to be a messenger and say that the captain needs them urgently. All those, um, Amelia and Tasha, are not going to be particularly good at seducing the guards. Amelia looks and behaves very much like someone who's lived in a forest for the last 20 years, and Tasha's an obvious pirate. I guess we'll try and start a fight amongst ourselves. Timing it just right, you begin to shove one another in the water queue. To make it convincing, you start to exchange a few hard blows, attempting to drag other slaves in the queue into the rumble. Good use of the word rumble. More fights should be referred to as rumbles. Each party member involved in the fight must lose one health point. Only party members assigned to the distraction team can contribute to this check. So to stage a convincing fight, uh, it's a fighting check, giving us a total of six dice to play with, and we need three successes on a four plus. We should, on average, make this. We don't. That's one success out of six. You cannot encourage the other slaves to join in the fight, meaning that the guards in the water queue are able to handle your disruptive behaviour. You are thrown into your cells and forced to abandon your attempt on the weapons today. That night you gather together and try to make new plans. You can reorganise your teams if you wish. Yeah. What strategy will you attempt now? Well, I think Sar Jessica and... Uh, Brash are going to form themselves into a hot people's alliance to try and seduce the guards while Amelia and Tasha go about trying to nick the weapons. Let's see if being hot is really a superpower. Uh, unfortunately, if Sir Jessica Dane is in the distraction team, the guards refuse to comply. Their sense of personal honour is too strict to attempt such a strategy. So, okay, we're going to reorganise once more, and this time we will send Brash and Tasha, who are the, I think, horniest 
of the available characters to uh, go and do the distraction whilst Jessica and Amelia attempt to rob the weapons lockers. So, can't even give it away at this point. The guards have been looking at you with hungry eyes recently. You sidle up to the gatehouse guards, suggesting all sorts of pleasures could await them in exchange for a few paltry rations. Only party members assigned to the distraction team can contribute to this check. You need two successes on a three plus check. So with eight dice, that would have to be trying really, really hard not to successfully seduce these guards. Oh yeah, they've been seduced all right. The eager guards take your distraction team away to a more private location. Hopefully this should give the other team enough time to carry out their task. So this is the first time we've seen any hint of what you might term adult-oriented content in an adventure game book we've covered. I can't remember any examples off the top of my head. It's nice drawing on a wider palette. Um, I mean, sexual exploitation of prisoners is an unpleasant and well-attested fact of history. Keep it light, HJ. Keep it light. Um, I'm choosing to read it in this instance as more of a light-hearted adventure staple than the exploitation of people who aren't in a position to say no. The door to the gatehouse is now unguarded and your weapon-stealing team can approach. The only obstacle is the gatehouse door, which is locked at all times. Do you want to steal the key from the overseer's office or attempt to force the door? So, with a stealth of three between them, um, Sar Jessica and Amelia are going to force the door. Picking up a nearby bench, you attempt to ram the gatehouse door. It's a uh, team check. Uh, the difficulty is five, and we need three successes. So, we've got eight. Could be all right. Success. Excellent. If you succeed, the door flies open after a few attempts. The gatehouse's weapon store is open to you. You may take any of the following items. Hide armour, which adds one armour. Shield, which adds two armour. A maul, two-handed fighting weapon. An iron short sword or a crude iron blade. Uh, you also grab a number of crude weapons for Everchild and her followers before fleeing the gatehouse, closing the door behind you. We'll stick with Brash... Having a shield, we'll give Jessica the maul. We will give Tasha the armor, and we will give Amelia the iron sword. So the logic here is kind of that um, I want to divide up my damage and my tankiness, so that uh, in a fight I can uh, assign damage. To Tasha and Brash, who've got defences first, while um, Amelia and uh, Jessica do the actual damage dealing. Uh, I think that makes the most sense. Yeah, I don't. I don't feel like this is a system where you want to put all your eggs in one basket. Um, there's an argument for saying Brash 
should have the armor and the shield and just be sat there as an eight health tank because his fighting is the absolute worst but again i, I don't want to have too many in one place so we'll 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 see what happens time is of the essence you quickly regroup with your companions and make your way down the darkened tunnels to the dig site the tiny crawl space has been painstakingly carved out of the wall concealed by a few broken barrels the everchild che long and three other conspirators are here delighted to see you as you come bearing armfuls of weapons they have not been idle securing torches and packs stuffed with water skins and food supplies what follows will not be easy the everchild warns the tunnels are far from safe but with your help we might just stand a chance at a nod from the everchild chelong descends into the tunnel first with you following tight behind the flames from your torches lick the low roof of the hand-dug tunnel and the space is claustrophobic in the extreme to your delight the tunnel eventually breaks through into an ancient chamber half flooded with two arched exits the walls are painted in odd flecks of colour displaying an ancient city dominated by a tall palace the palace of my ancestor still stands notes the everchild as she examines the decaying mural with you most of the rest of the city is little better than brick hovels now there is much work to be done you examine the exits from the chamber one at the back of the waterlogged chamber which seems to descend down into yet more murky water the dry exit looks the most logical but i wonder where the water-filled one leads muses the everchild do you want to offer to scout the watery arch or suggest that you head through the safer drier archway uh let's go for the safer drier archway let's let's not descend into the watery arch this may be slightly influenced by having played a lot of dark souls too recently and uh, being absolutely terrified of anything that might slow my movement you emerge into a large chamber filled with cobwebs which incinerate at the touch of your torches the floor of this chamber has half collapsed and in a small crevice you can make out the eggs of giant spiders heaped one upon another the adult spiders lurk in the ceiling corners of the chamber waiting patiently for a chance to strike you could make your way carefully through the crevice since sloped rubble is piled up on either side of the drop but you would have to carefully navigate past the eggs you also spy a narrow ledge around the crevice which might allow you to avoid the crevice completely provided you all make it across without falling or perhaps it would be wiser to attack the spiders whilst you are on firm ground and get a battle out of the way do you want to creep through the crevice sneak along the ledge or provoke the spiders into battle Oof, that is a really tough decision that is a really tough decision i think i'm going to try and fight the spiders to get them out of the way i just have this image of, of trying to to sneak along a ledge and just waking up many spiders and then a whole bunch of spiders hatching and it just becoming this big spider fiesta and i'm nothing against spiders in real life other than you know don't come in my house please but yeah a spider fiesta doesn't sound like a barrel of laughs so let's try and uh fight some spiders 
So, in such a dangerous place, battle appears inevitable. You confer with the Everchild who agrees with your plan to strike first. She raises her hand and unleashes a terrible blast of power that jolts all the giant spiders clinging to the roof. They come tumbling down, but quickly regain their feet and rush to an attack. So there are one, two, three, four spiders. One black, one grey, one green, one red. They all need fives to hit. They've all got a defence of four. They vary in health from six to four. And they vary in attack from four to five. So I'm going to try and take out the weakest spider first. And then try and take out one of the ones with the most attack next. I think that's the sensible way to proceed. This feels like quite a tough fight. So... I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the spiders. Uh, Brash was reduced to 7 health. And uh, Tasha was reduced to 6. It was genuinely a really interesting, at times quite tactical, battle. I also exhausted one of my spells, the Unfailing Strike spell to deal three damage immediately to one of the spiders to finish it off so that I would definitely reduce the amount of uh, damage coming my way. Um, Yeah, I genuinely found that a very enjoyable combat to run. The more enemies you have, the more interesting the decisions you have to make are and getting to decide in what order you're going to attack becomes quite an interesting tactical decision as well. I mean, it's not complicated tactical decisions but it is definitely tactical decisions and uh, that's a cool thing to see in a game book it really is with the largest spiders dispatched the eggs are at your mercy you cast a couple of lit torches into the crevice containing the spider eggs and the flames consume them almost in moments only a few tiny survivors scurry into the cracks of the walls with the way clear you are able to cross the chamber safely. You emerge into a tunnel that soon splits in two. One route leads down slightly, the other slopes up. Ancient writing crosses the walls, and the Everchild calls for more light as she examines it. The downward slope leads to an old armoury, she comments. Upwards, a changing room. There is no indication which route leads out, however. Uh, so which way should we go? Well, I think we will head down towards the armory, but I also think this is an apposite moment for me to pause because uh, I've been recording for quite a while, longer than it might seem to you because the combat system is that bit more involved. Yes, I hope that's provided you with uh, an intriguing taster of the first volume of Legendary Kingdoms, Valley of Bones. I'm going to go away and probably spend the next week or so playing through it and trying to understand its secrets. But I will be back for you in just a couple of seconds with some closing remarks. Tatty bye. This is a really tough book to review. I've been playing it for a week and I'm still not sure I have a complete handle on it. On the one hand, it's incredibly easy to recommend. Basically, if my playthrough has tickled your interest, then it's almost certainly worth a punt. 
The book isn't cheap. The physical copy will cost you north of £20. There's such an abundance of content, though, I feel it does easily justify the price tag. I feel like I've had more than my money's worth from the 12 quid or so I spent on the PDF. The functional design is inspired on many levels. This is a book pushing hard at the boundaries of what a game book can accomplish. You have complete freedom of movement, and you can revisit areas multiple times without it feeling strange, thanks to an incredibly robust keyword system that tracks almost everything you do. You have a freedom that is unsurpassed in any other game book I've played. There's elements of the design that I'm going to gush about in detail, but I've also got some admittedly minor reservations about where this sits in terms of game books as a creative medium. The opening premise, captured by slavers, is a hoary old trope, but it's also a trope that pretty much always works. It was the opening for Skyrim, after all, more or less. Putting the party in an environment and a set of circumstances that are as strange to them as they will be to the player is just a solid opening gambit. You can also think of the Fallout video games where they open with you emerging from a bunker into a strange and terrifying new world, or Breath of the Wild where you emerge from a mystical slumber into an environment completely changed from the one the character you play knew. Fish Out of Water is an incredibly efficient bit of storytelling because it allows you to sidestep having to do a bunch of world building before you get started on the action. The main narrative of overthrowing a tyrant is also a familiar trope to role-playing fans, but it creates an ongoing sense of purpose and encourages you to explore the world as you look for potential allies and find out what you need to do to get them on side. And I think in game books, story that you unravel as you go along is always better than needing to front load the story with exposition. So big thumbs up for me on that basic setup. There's also a nice element of doubt which creeps in later about the Everchild herself. She seems plausible and um, believable, but there's this nagging question about whether she might just be a chancer latching onto a convenient legend and getting you, a group of morons, to do her dirty work for her. Let's look at some of the design elements that I think are strongest. The open world elements are the first thing I want to examine. I think this is a very difficult thing to get right, and Valley of Bones does a superb job of making the world feel open while nudging you towards various different strands of the plot. You can completely ignore the main plot if you want, and the game will still feel fun. This is less a story than a place, and I very much enjoyed being able to travel from settlement to settlement getting into scrapes. The aforementioned keyword system is crucial to this. There's about a hundred different keywords tracking different encounters you've found, and it does an admirable job of making it feel like you're actually changing the world as you work your way through it. Often it's as simple as noting that you've killed a monster or found an item, but there's also plenty in there governing how you've dealt with the various NPCs and made more lasting changes to your environment. I'm a big fan of keywords, and this is probably the most extensive keyword system I have ever seen. One interesting consequence of the keyword system is that individual encounters have to be fairly simple. Because you're tracking whether you've had the encounter, you can't track that many different outcomes for the encounters themselves. 
you already need to have a minimum of two versions of any encounter with a keyword, and that tends to act as a constraining force on the way you design. It pushes you towards a binary way of thinking, which is clean, but also somewhat more limited. Thankfully, the encounter design here is good enough to counterbalance the inherent limitations of this approach. A well-written encounter with only two outcomes can be just as satisfying as one with many different ways out. Because of how the keyword system and open world approach impacts on the design space, there's actually not as many encounters as you might think in a book that runs to 900 paragraphs, and that's actually a good thing. Each settlement contains a manageable number of things to do at any one time. You get a nice flavour of the places, but they don't become overwhelming. There's a nice clear map which also helps with this. And there's something lovely about trekking across the valley, then realising that you found something or someone that might open up some new options in one of the places you've already visited. That sense of a world that is changing and reacting is really strong, and that helps to mitigate the simplicity of the majority of the encounters. Not all of them are simple by any means either. There are some that are considerably more complex, and uh, that's adding more variety, which is always a good thing. The encounters are also remarkably well balanced. There is a sense of levelling, there is a sense of progression, but the levelling system is quite flat. You don't get much, much more powerful at the end of the story than you were at the beginning. And that also, I think, is a really smart choice because it does give you that sense of progression. But it also means that the encounters can be constrained within a relatively narrow range of difficulty. There's definitely some that are, are much more difficult, but you're not going to find that the choices of where to go are illusory because of the difficulty of the encounters. You can go in lots of different places at lots of different stages of the adventure and still feel that you're having a more or less balanced time. The mechanical writing is very strong for the most part too. Mostly the paragraphs are short but evocative, packing a lot into a few words, which is the holy grail of gamebook prose, especially if you're going to be visiting areas relatively frequently. I never felt like I was fighting through the words to get to what I needed to know. There are some areas that feel underwritten, specifically the dungeons where the terse style highlights exactly why I think dungeons are so hard to write. It's very difficult to make a series of corridors come to life, and Valley of Bones doesn't really make more than a token effort. There's a fair number of interesting things behind the doors in the dungeons, but there's also just a lot of fights. It's a fair reflection of the classic role-playing experience, but it's also not my favourite end of role-playing tropes. The good news is that the high prevalence of fights means that it's time to talk about the combat system, and the combat system is just fantastic. I could already see from reading the rules that the combat system would probably work fine, not least because it's a lot like the Warhammer wargaming system, and I know that works perfectly well. But I was even more impressed when I actually started running the fights. This book has hands down 
the best fights I've ever had in a game book. The fact that you've got a party with different abilities makes even simple fights involve at least a modicum of tactical thinking. Given that you're usually fighting a few different enemies at once, there's a real pleasure in deciding what order you're going to attack, which target you're going to attack, and which party member is going to tank damage, and when you're going to use your limited number of spells. I found myself weighing up quite a number of different factors with the fights, trying to optimise my damage output to end the fight quickly, and that usually meant focusing down one fighter at a time to reduce the incoming damage as quickly as possible, but there are points where I thought I might be able to end the fight around early if I split my damage between targets and just tried to tank the incoming blows. So it's not quite a one-size-fits-all approach. The system itself gives a nice wide range of different fights in its core systems, which means that there's less need for combat tricks to make things feel interesting. You've got a number of sliders that you can mess with to create a variety of interesting challenges before you even start thinking of introducing new rules. Combat tricks are certainly present, but already a monster with a few attacks that hit on threes presents a slightly different challenge to a monster with lots of attacks that hits on fives, even if the actual damage output might work the same on average. When you're presented with a range of monsters with different health, different defense, different attack scores, there's a whole bunch of ways that the fight can play out. All things being equal, it is fairly straightforward to work out what the optimal approach should be, but things tend to just get more interesting once the randomness of dice actually kicks in. If a monster has a chance, even if it's a low chance, of putting out enough damage to kill one of your party, that monster suddenly becomes a priority target, even if it's not strictly the best target according to the probabilities. It's a lovely system that makes most fights feel interesting and potentially dangerous. You're rolling enough dice that you can generally make a fairly good guess about how the fight is likely to go, but not so many that there isn't scope for sudden moments of excitement and surprise. This is because if you roll more dice, the shape of the distribution changes. If you roll 1d6 once, each outcome of that d6 is equally likely. Roll lots of dice, however, and the mean roll of 3.5 per dice becomes more and more likely. If you roll 100 dice and total the score, you'll probably get somewhere around 350. You're very unlikely to roll a score of 100, which would be all ones. If you've ever played a war game that involves big fistfuls of dice, you'll be aware that big units perform more reliably than small units. Over many games, they both deal the same amount of damage per model, but the bigger unit tends to show less variation in their damage output, and if they do perform extremely well or badly on one turn, they'll probably perform more in line with expectations the next turn because of regression to the mean. What this means is that there is a sweet spot for handfuls of dice where you can calculate an expected outcome for the engagement, but surprises come up often enough to feel interesting, but not so often that combat feels too risky and too random. 
Valley of Bones combat generally feels like it's bang in that sweet spot. The combats all feel fair, but there's plenty of scope for the unexpected. It just plays out extremely well in practice. I said it doesn't need to make too many use of combat tricks because the combat system is deeper than average. However, there are some nice twists on the formula. There's a great fight with some skeletons and some skeleton archers where you have to deal at least some damage to the archers each round to prevent them shooting at you. That's a great mechanic because it forces you to split your damage, which is a thing that the combat system generally pushes you away from. And it also makes intuitive sense because archers can only shoot if no one is punching them in the face. I mean, I'm no expert, but I think that's how bows work. There's an ambush in one of the dungeons, which was possibly the most exciting fight experience I've had in a game book. A desperate fight, which I only just survived, burning all my spells and magic items along the way. Then a desperate dash back through the dungeon to the entrance, so I could make the perilous journey back across the desert to a city that would allow me to heal up and lick my wounds. It's something you could only have in a book with a non-linear approach. And knowing that I could heal up and return to the dungeon and have another crack made retreat feel more tactical than simply giving up. Of course, then one of my party died of heat stroke on the way back and I did throw my toys out of the pram a bit. I had a little tantrum and decided that I would start again because I just didn't want to carry on adventuring without my stupid, hot, idiot brash. Disappointing, but I actually quite like the idea of a group of adventurers disbanding after suffering the death of a comrade. It's easy to imagine one of the survivors as a fixture in a local tavern, trying to drink away their guilt and issuing slurred warnings to the next generation of wide-eyed adventurers that there's sometimes a terrible cost to a life of heroism. It's a textbook example of how a good system elevates a book and creates narratives which the author didn't anticipate. Also, the health you get as a starting group, assuming you take a balanced group, feels about right as well. Incidentally, uh, while we're vaguely on the subject of dice and probability, you can deliberately tune your games in ways that take advantage of different models my very silly retro hack of Dungeons & Dragons deliberately uses a single D6 as the resolution system because I wanted the game to feel random in the same stupid way that Dungeons & Dragons D20 system does because systems using a single die as a resolution system always feel more random in the moment than game systems that use multiple dice, which, as we've seen, tend to cohere around a mean role. Sometimes you want things to feel just that bit more arbitrary for whatever reason. I initially thought that uh, using the same system for task resolution might be a bit of a sticking point, but honestly, it works better than I expected. By manipulating both the number you need to roll on a dice and also the number of successes, you need to succeed, you can create a range of interesting results. Firstly, you can gate off certain tasks. If 
you only want a stealth specialist to be able to succeed on a task. You can require enough successes that only someone with a stealth of three or more stands a chance of succeeding. You can then make the task fairly easy for that specialist to achieve by requiring a low target number. So you are awarded there for bringing along a character with a high stealth. On the other hand, if you want to make a difficult challenge that anyone could have a crack at, you could set a high target number but a low number of successes. It's a lovely system that's somewhat similar to the Worlds of Darkness system by White Wolf, but better because I love D6s more than D10s, because D6s are the people's dice. I will say that the magic system doesn't quite land for me. It's still well worth taking a spellcaster for plot reasons and to get access to the higher lore stats, but the spells, while useful, don't create quite enough of an impact in combat, given that you can only use them once. I did find myself using them, however, and even if it's not the strongest part of the system, it's still basically fun. All of these different systems and the number of characters and the keywords and the items creates a lot of complexity. It's the first time I've needed to use a spreadsheet just to keep track of everything. Between stats for four people, equipment, keywords, clues and items, it can feel a bit overwhelming at times. There is a free record sheet from the publishers, but honestly, a spreadsheet just seemed like a better option, to be honest. I ended up playing with the book open on my tablet and another copy open on my laptop, so I could check rules whilst I was playing through the game. Thankfully, the rules are so clear and straightforward that I rarely needed to refer to them. The PDF copy works really well, of course, but the paper copy is probably better. It has reminded me that I need to think about these things with my own PDF books and perhaps provide some additional resources where they might be useful. Despite all this mechanical baggage, there's a surprisingly good sense of narrative flow Although you are totally free just to blunder around the world, getting into scrapes, there's plenty of times when you'll be moving with purpose. Picking up a rumour in one location, then travelling to investigate feels very empowering, because you know that you could also just go and do something else if you felt like it, and then return to the main plot. And it's also great to be able to flee from a dangerous area, and know that when the time is right, you've got some more sharp things, you'll be back to settle accounts. But there is still a nice coherent plot running through the book and you are gently steered towards it rather than being absolutely required to engage with it and do a few other odds and sods on the side. And this approach creates plenty of opportunity for emergent storytelling alongside the intended plot. And one thing that I really like about game books and video games is their ability to generate meta-narratives that are drawn from the source material but go beyond it in ways that the creator cannot envisage. I remember playing a roguelike platform game with randomised loot and ending up with an utter sad sack of a character who couldn't really do anything. He was just absolutely screwed by the random rolls 
and nothing I did seemed to make it better. That poor benighted loser was one of hundreds of characters I played in that game, but he sticks in my mind because he was so uniquely cursed. He had a narrative about being Unlucky Keith. Unlucky Keith wasn't something the developers deliberately designed the game to produce. He was the outcome of the systems working together in a slightly bizarre way. In the same way, I've sometimes found myself amused when the dice have really been against me in a game book and my character has rocked up half-starved and bleeding heavily from a score of wounds at a location only to be treated like the hero the book kind of just assumed you'd be. Please help us, the locals wail as my character struggles to staunch the flow of blood. I mean, there is a kind of dark comedy to that which I really enjoy. The more ways you have of engaging with a game, the more meta-narratives they can generate. And Valley of Bones is a great example of the kind of media that produces those meta-narratives almost every time you play it. Interestingly, you don't get meta-narratives in the same way in a tabletop role-playing game because they are inherently reactive to player actions and experience. Though anyone who has ever tried to run a published scenario for a gaming group has probably got a host of stories about the way the party managed to utterly break the plot through doing the unexpected or failing to do something that was in theory trivially easy. You could certainly have a character who survived a dungeon only to pathetically die of heat stroke on the way home, but you wouldn't be able to do what I did, which was imagine the consequences for the party and their disbanding, because if you are playing in a role-playing game on the table, even incentive to want to hang on to your character and not just call it a day because one member of the party has dropped dead. And even if you did that, it would become part of the narrative. It wouldn't become part of a meta-narrative. Now, there's a big influence of video games, I think, on Valley of Bones. And I would say that it's a mixed blessing. It's a book that very much wants you to engage with its systems. And in many ways, more than engage with the characters. There are elements of the game book that feel so strongly like a video game that I wonder whether it might not be better off as a video game, perhaps in the style of Mike Singleton's Lords of Midnight, not least because there is a lot of bookkeeping that a video game would make seamless. Yet, the barrier for entry into the game book space is still so much lower than the barrier for entry into the video game space. To turn this into a video game, you'd have to do all the work of the book, and then you'd have to do a bunch of other work on top. You'd need a lot more art, you'd need a user interface, you'd need programmers. You could maybe get somewhere close with Twine on your own, but you're still going to multiply the labour considerably. Also, the ability for anyone to hack a game book should not be underestimated. Um, in the later stages of playing, as my deadline for finishing got ever closer, I found ways to very slightly cheat and make the experience a little bit smoother by essentially allowing myself to fast travel from one settlement to the next once 
I knew the ins and outs of the journey between them. And that's something that you don't get in a video game without people with specific skill sets. Also, when I was very pressed for time and the deadline was really looming very large, I could skip combats and just assume that I passed stat checks because I'd already seen enough of the book to know the systems worked and were fair and balanced and I could eyeball fights and be pretty confident that I'd be able to win them. But it might take a little while because the combat system is not particularly fast. Uh, and that didn't feel like massively cheating. And that ability to decide absolutely how you personally engage with the material is something very powerful that game books have that video games don't. My nature means that I'm always seeking perfection. When something is great, I want to know how it could be better. There's some tremendous work gone into this book, and I think that once the whole set is out, you could spend months adventuring round the world the author has designed, setting your own goals and deciding for yourself which bits you want to do in which order. And that's unique and amazing, but some of that does come at the cost of a truly compelling narrative. The narrative is there, but it's not the strongest part of the experience. It's an amazing game, but it's not necessarily an amazing book. Some of my favourite moments from playing it were the character-based moments. Akihiro's search for enlightenment stands out as a particular highlight, and I wanted more of those. I loved the little interactions the characters have with each other when they begin to develop feelings for one another, but those moments had a tendency to be swamped by long periods of tramping back and forth, doing small tasks for people, and trying to remember what locations various clues were tied to. Essentially, I want the platonic ideal of a game book which has valley of bones scope and sense of freedom, but weds that to a truly engaging story that feels grounded in the characters. I want the moon on a stick, basically. The moon on a stick. Part of it comes from the party system. I've talked about some of the good things that this system does in terms of making the fights so fascinating, but there's also a distancing effect that comes from having multiple viewpoint characters, and that never sits entirely well with the second person, and indeed the narrative sometimes flips into the third person when it wouldn't be possible to describe the events in the second person without confusion abounding. Jumping from viewpoint character to viewpoint character in the second person is a strange experience. If it were done in a conventional novel, it would be a very interesting formal piece of experimentation, but here it just has a tendency to muddy the waters a little. It's not a serious problem in the sense that most of the text works absolutely fine, but it is something that makes it a little bit harder to identify with the characters. If it were me doing it, I think I might have been tempted to have a party leader who is more of a traditional gamebook blank slate that the reader can project themselves onto and then have them recruit other characters into the party that they could romance or fall out with or what have you. 
that would create some additional writing challenges when you want to pick people to do particular tasks or split the party in two. But I think there's more benefits than downsides in creating something that marries that desire to represent an adventuring party with the feeling of immersion that a second person narrative provides. Those might make it sound like I'm a bit down on Valley of Bones and there are times when I did find it a little frustrating and a little repetitive but overall the good far outweighs the bad for me. If you don't have access to a role-playing group Valley of Bones is definitely the closest thing I've found to modelling the experience of a certain kind of tabletop role-playing campaign and that is an astounding accomplishment. It's pushing right up against the fringes of what is possible in the medium of game books and that's something I will always celebrate. It's one I definitely recommend and I will be getting a copy of the second book in the series as well. You can actually travel between the various different locations that the books are set in and kind of treat it as one big campaign and I'm very intrigued to see how that works in practice. Well, that's all for this episode. Join me in a couple of weeks for the next regular episode when I'll be covering Master of Chaos from the Fighting Fantasy series. If you want to get in touch with me, then you can do so via hjdoomretrofun or one word at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, then please consider leaving a review somewhere people might notice. Thank you very much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon.